race war or a civil war, all right, or a war in Ukraine. Let's have a love war. All right, let's see how much we can love each other. All right, let's see how we can romanticize our lives. Come I'm on, guys. I'm obsessed with it. When I finally decide to get out of bed, I always have to make the bed. I am a tidier. I'm not necessarily a deep cleaner. I don't like weekend chores, but I like my spaces to be tidy and to look nice. I've gotten a lot of questions about this duvet cover. It's from Amazon and I do have it linked. Right, so instead of, you know, focusing on some shooter in Atlanta or some divisive political issue, you know, why don't we focus on each other? And uh, one thing I find very frustrating is the feeling of being ignored. How do you like it when you feel ignored? It's a really sick feeling. It's, it's the equivalent of your partner saying, yeah, you can do that thing that you really want to do, and I don't mind, right? You can use me, but I'm not going to enjoy it, all right? If you do that, you're going to feel absolutely sick afterwards, as unfortunately I know from firsthand experience. Like I, I only did that once and it's like, no way, I'm, I'm never doing that again. So there's got to be, there's got to be a better way to live and a better way to operate. So having a, a blacks only, you know, a blacks, a blacks only graduation or a Jewish only graduation or a, a transvestite only graduation, you know, makes you feel happier. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing. So there's a good article I read the other day in Men's Health. All right, are you all up to date on your Men's Health subscription? So I subscribe to Apple News Plus, and as a result, I get access to dozens of fantastic newspapers and erudite publications, including Men's Health and. I had this article on when you feel ignored, right? How to deal when the world is too damn busy for you. When you feel like you are constantly being ignored, here is what to do. And I hate the feeling, all right? It hurts. It stings. It, it bites. It bleeds. All right? It, it's bad. I mean... When you make love, do you look in your mirror? What do you think of? Does she look like me? Do you tell lies and say that it's forever? Do you think twice or just touch and see? When you're alone, do you let go? Are you wild and willing or is it just for show? I don't want to touch you too much, baby, because making love to you might drive me crazy. I know you think that love is the way you make it, so I don't want to be there when you decide to break it. No. Where am I? Okay. I don't want to touch you too much, baby, because making love to you might drive me crazy. I know you think that love is the way you make it, so I don't be there when you decide to break it. No, love bites. Love bleeds. It's bringing me to my knees. Love lives. Love dies. It's no surprise. Love begs. Love pleads. It's what I need. Okay, awful feeling. So I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, that awful feeling when you are ignored. And... This is how I understand it. When I'm ignored, all right, you know, when I've made a loud, you know, strong bid for someone's attention and they ignore me, I ideally, I try not to stew over it. Instead, I think about all the ways that I ignore other people and how I intend to keep ignoring other people who are not aligned with my best interests. So 
then I understand that people who are ignoring me, they do it because they understand it's in their best interests. And then I think about how I can realign myself with reality so I don't stay in this pain of being ignored. So I occasionally will bid twice for someone's attention. But if I don't get attention on the second bid, I almost never bid a third time. So I try to digest the important information being conveyed by being ignored. So usually I have overestimated my importance to the other person or the other group. And then I move on. So there are plenty of people who are happy to respond to me. Right now I've got five people live in the chat. All right. So I take time to reconnect with my best self, to mourn if necessary, right? The, the lack of connections which I thought I might have going to mourn, to soothe, and then when I'm at peace, I move back out into the world. So I try not to hold a grudge against those who ignore me because I know how often I ignore others. When people who once ignored me get back in touch, I almost always respond positively. So I'm thinking about one friendship. It took you know one friend more than 15 years to get back in touch, and I welcome that. So I'd like to think that at the lofty age of 56, I don't cling much. One of the sickest feelings I've ever had is when I've butted into conversations and social interactions where I'm not wanted. So I don't think that has happened to me very often over the past five years, but on the rare occasions it has, it's a very painful reminder that I have lost touch with reality and almost always because I have a delusional sense of my own wisdom and my own importance. So the more isolated I get, the more ignored I get, the more delusional I get. It's like a, a downward spiral. Well, the more connected I get, the better I get. So when I feel bad, when love bites, when love bleeds, when I feel ignored, I try not to distract myself from the bad feeling, the pain. Right? It's just telling me I've suffered a loss in my perceptions, right? My perceptions of reality quite out of whack with reality. So I no longer seek to drown my sadness in crystal light classic orange. But by blissing out with grandiose fantasies, I try to understand what I've learned from the setback. And I grieve. Then within a few hours or a few days, I'm back to enjoying life with the people who love me. Like Dennis Prager. Not all therapists do, but I would say at least half. Therapists I've talked to say two-thirds. No, three-quarters. It's a chance to build unity and community with one another. Office for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Vice Chair. It may well, like these, these black-only, Jewish-only, uh, Mexican-only, Korean-only graduation ceremonies, it may well bring magic and enchantment and enlightenment and unity and uh, energy, right? When you get on the same page with other people, it's a lot easier to do things with, uh, you know, with people with whom you feel a strong connection. So... I've changed my mind on blacks-only, gay-only graduation ceremonies. I've come around to thinking that they're a good thing. Chancellor Clyde Pickett told the student newspaper, what would Clyde Pickett be doing for a living <laughs> if he were not a, uh, an equity, diversity, and inclusion official? You realize how, much jo how many jobs there are? College graduates are looking for work. It's an industry. No, it's an industry. I mean, uh, what was the... The Stanford number was administrators equal the number of, uh, what was it, students, yeah. There was the same number of administrators as students. So what was it, like 1,700 or something? And they're all paid in the, in the high fives and many sixes. So, no, not, they're all, not every single one is in diversion, ex equity, and inclusion. But I, I, I would love the college fix or somebody to do the research. Okay, so why not just uh, 
Enjoy a romantic spring morning routine. Yeah, my Amazon storefront that's down in the description box. I mean, this is a better way to love and to live, right? To say no to simple war talk and race war talk and Ukraine war talk and the dreary, depressing news and uh, political partisanship. Since I'm romanticizing my life to the fullest, I decided to use my washstand to wash my face today. I love this washstand. It's absolutely perfect. And thinking about the places it has been or the people that have used it and the way it's part of history, it just makes me so happy. Right. So if a black only, gay only, trans only graduation makes you so happy, then doggone it, do it. I'm down. Of the conservative world. It is systemically racist from the perspective of what the left so even if it's systemically racist all right dennis Prager says it's systemically racist if it brings you joy if it brings you love do it to blacks ultimately the success of our students is our most important priority so i think any elevation and acknowledgement of our students that allows for space ah, space i didn't think of that one space is another vocabulary of the academic left what were the other words matrix uh, inter, what is the thing? Inter what? Intersectionality. intersectionality. Is there a human living in America who has used intersectionality and not meant some left-wing idea? <laughs> space is important, all right? A special space just for your in-group to, you know, get together and, you know, have an enchanted magical occasion. What did 40, 40 run off to do between streams? Asia Messiah? God forbid. God forbid. I was arranging. I was doing the hard work. I was setting the foundations to make a lot of money. That's what I was doing. All right? Money. Money, money, money. Money, money, money. That's what I was doing. Okay. You, you think I, I get to live in this kind of luxury without uh, doing some, some serious hard work? <laughs> Has anybody ever said in a conversation to friends, you know, the intersectionality of the matrix leaves us space. <laughs> space. There, these people are cliches. What? There's some numbers just for the University of Michigan. There's numbers just for the University of Michigan? You put it up on IM? Yeah. Well, bless your soul. You're a good man. All right. Well, this is very important. Let's see. Just the University of Michigan spends more than 18. It's not wasted. It is spent on people who will brainwash and indoctrinate. Lavender graduation. What's wrong? It's magical. Did you a lavender graduation at the uh, University of Illinois? I can't see you at, at lavender graduation. Not, not because of any hostility. I just... Listen, I didn't attend my regular college graduation. I think I went to a movie. <laughs> I didn't you didn't either? Yeah. That's fascinating. It, you probably went to a baseball game. I probably went to yeah, a movie yeah, too. Yeah, huh? Oh, you probably went to a so if people find a way to mark special occasions or to take an occasion out of the ordinary and, you know, do some rituals to say that this is special, then, like, who am I to judge the black, gay, Latino, Mexican, Korean, Norwegian group that, that does these things, man? Let people have the joy, bro. Movie too. Yeah, that's right. That's your thing. Both the Office of Inclusion and Belonging. Oh, that's a beautiful name. The Office of Inclusion and Belonging. Belonging, that's a new one. Yeah. Oh, now it's a big thing? You know why? Because they belong to nothing. The, the, there were so many things you belong to in American history. Some non-governmental organization. You, you belong to a club. You belong to a church. You belong to a synagogue. You belong to a religious community. You, you belong to 
an American group. You belong to 4-H. You belong to the Boy Scouts. You, it's endless. They've all been destroyed by the left. Now you belong to the left. It's an actually, it's an accurate term. The Office of Inclusion and Belonging to the Left. That's how we should refer to it. And a separate Office of Equity and Diversity teamed up with Pitt Queer Professionals. Well, maybe they feel marginalized. Maybe they feel lonely. The Surgeon General has got this uh, loneliness task force. I, I think this is a great idea, right? We Are we in a crisis, to- Mel? A loneliness crisis? We are absolutely in a loneliness crisis. When you see the data that one out of every two Americans is struggling with loneliness. And I want to break down what this means, Poppy, because you may not realize that you're dealing with loneliness. Like the Surgeon General, I certainly didn't. Uh, Right in the middle of the pandemic, I started to wonder, am I depressed? Is this anxiety? Am I spiraling in a mental health crisis? And I realized... I'm just profoundly lonely. And so I want to break this down for everybody so you understand what it actually means and what to do about it. Because the policies and the recommendations are fantastic. But for you listening, this is something that you have to take seriously, Poppy, because it impacts every aspect of your physical and mental health. And so let's talk about the three types of loneliness that we all face, Poppy. The first one is emotional. And this means you feel as though you lack relationships and social connection. Because loneliness, Poppy, is really about the fact that you need connection, you need attachment, and you need a sense of belonging. And for so many of us that either moved during the pandemic or changed jobs or we are working remote, we are missing relationships in our life. And so that's one way you can be lonely. Second way you can be lonely, everybody, is social that you just don't feel like you belong to any group at all. And now that uh, attendance in religious organizations is down and people are working remote, again, a huge driver of this, you just don't feel like you belong anywhere. And then finally, the big one, existential, that's a form of loneliness where you no longer feel connected to your own values, that your life is sort of off track. Mm -hmm. And so I think the big question, Poppy, is what do you do when you realize, wow, I'm actually lonely? I think another question is, did COVID highlight this or did it, did it make it worse? Did it amplify it? Both. I think it amplified it, but it also put a big highlighter on the fact that we really miss our friends. We miss being connected to people. We miss the rhythms. As much as we talk about the fact that hybrid work is fantastic and it allows you to be able to be more connected with your family if you're living with your family. But I think for a lot of us, what it highlighted is just that I really need this sense of connection. And there's a second problem that happened during So I would expect a lot of gays, transgendered, and whoever has these special graduation ceremonies, it would help them feel less lonely. COVID-2, which is we, by being in lockdown, our nervous system flipped into a fight-or-flight mode, and we actually, for a while there, were scared of other people. How many of you Mm. feel as though you've become more introverted? How much harder is it for you to push yourself out of your house? Your default has become to kind of be more shut in instead of being more connected to other people. I had that conversation with three different people this weekend. Caitlin and I were at the White House Correspondents' Center, and there were literally 2,600 people around us. And I felt a little bit, I don't know. I was like, 
uh, am I an introvert? Like, this is not me, but maybe this is me now. And I had this conversation with three people who were feeling the same way. Is it is the solution to loneliness just surrounding us ourselves with more people or the kind? No, right? It's about who we <laughs> surround ourselves with. You're shaking your head. Poppy, you, you just nailed it. You can be in a room full of people and feel deeply lonely. Yeah. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Whether it was in middle school or college where you walk in the first week of school and you walk into a cafeteria and you feel like you're not really connected to anybody. You don't belong. It's about the quality of the connection. You can feel lonely in your marriage. You can feel lonely at work. And so I think the really important thing is to think about, number one, what are you actually doing to create connection with people? Mm. And one thing that everybody can do today is make it a habit to text somebody every single day. Mm. Just reach out. I was just thinking about you. I miss you. I'd love to see you. That is enough to get the ball rolling. Mm. The second thing that you can do is figure out what's something that you did before the pandemic that created meaning for you, whether it was volunteering or a hobby. And simply volunteering or taking a class up here, there's a ton of people that moved Poppy during the pandemic. I happen to be one of them. I realize I don't know anybody here. We started a walking group using a local Facebook page. And so this is something that I want everybody to take seriously. I think most of us are struggling with a sense of loneliness. We don't see our friends as much. We're not at work with everybody. And it's something I want you to start to change. You got to take. So I, I give credit to the Biden administration, the Surgeon General, for taking this the public on. health emergency brought on by the coronavirus. Our next guest says a new health challenge is taking center stage, debilitating levels of loneliness in America. Joining us now to explain, U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Dr. Murthy, great to see you. Great to have you. Um, so this is so important. important. Yeah. Uh, you've got this report out, something that I'm not sure a lot of people appreciate um, how profound the problem is and the impacts of it, physical. It can be like obesity. It can be like a lack of exercise. It can be like smoking in what it does to your body. So lay out, if you would, just how deep this problem is in America. Well, Willie, I'm so glad we're here talking about this because loneliness is a problem that has existed behind the And one thing that makes people lonelier is astronomical rates of crime, particularly violent crime. Uh, when bad people triumph, right, good people tend to pull their head in like a turtle and isolate. Shadows for too long. And I came to realize this when I first began my tenure as Surgeon General and I traveled the country and would talk to people who would tell me that they were lonely, but they wouldn't use that word. Mm. They would say things like, you know, I feel I have to carry all these burdens in my life. So, yeah, good on the Biden administration for tackling this, talking about this, good on the Surgeon General. So another way to minimize loneliness in your life is to have a strong in-group identity. And you can't have a strong in-group identity without also having some negative feelings about our groups. So we can help ease the way for people to be more connected to each other by turning down our vitriolic reactions to dislike or fear of outgroups, right? Strong in-group identity is always accompanied by negative views of outgroups, but people with strong in-group identity are less lonely. By myself, where I feel if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would care, where mm -hmm. I feel invisible. You don't feel anything. 
Right, and it turns out that millions of people struggle with loneliness. So when you dig into the data, what you find is that about one in two adults in America uh, is reporting levels of loneliness, and these numbers are even greater among kids. But what you also find is that loneliness has serious effects on our mental health and our physical health, raising our risk for depression, anxiety, and suicide, but also increasing our risk of heart disease, stroke, dementia, and premature death. So what is at the root of this, Doctor? I mean, we talked a lot about the phone. We talked about the way technology has changed our lives, made it's a little more insular, even though we're connected in digital ways. As you study the problem, what's, what's behind it? Well, that's the right question, and it turns out that this is a problem that has been building for decades. Uh, we have over 40, 50 years seen declining participation in the community organizations. So another reason for declining participation in community organizations is that you're not allowed to have men's clubs anymore. If you allowed men's clubs, right, <laughs> you'd, you'd have less of this problem. But as soon as you forcefully integrated the men's clubs, people dropped out of men's clubs. Now, if you want to have a men's club, you basically can... You know, only find it in a religious situation. Laponius, that's very hurtful and unkind to say that if this bloke disappeared, nobody would would care. That that's bro, this this show is for you. Right? But bro, this bud is for you and this show is for you. Let's learn to live and to love. That used to bring people together, uh, including service organizations, faith organizations, and others. But we're also seeing that our life has changed dramatically. We move around more, we change jobs more often, and technology has utterly transformed how we interact with one another. Now, look, I'm, that can be good or bad. It can help us or hurt us. It's how it's designed and how we use it. But what I worry about is that it has too often replaced our in-person connections uh, with lower quality off, you know, online connections. And it's also prioritized the quantity of connections. Right, so we don't want to you know, prioritize these online connections over the, the vibrant in-person connections that you can have at Costco or just walking down a street in San Francisco. So, I mean, I, I'm glad you're here, right? Let's live and love and talk together. But, uh, you know, don't, don't prioritize this show, you know, over, over real opportunities to live and to love. Now you're wondering, 40, play more from Dennis Prager. PQP. The pit queer professionals. It's a truly long. PQP need love too. They need community too. They need in group identity too. They need reasons to celebrate. Lost civilization. Still want your kid to go to college? Ceremony is an annual ceremony. Quote is an annual ceremony. This is the announcement celebrating the achievements of undergraduate, graduate, and professional students in the LGBTQIA plus community across all University of Pittsburgh campuses. Other universities have also held race or sexuality specific ceremonies. The University of Chicago student group will host a specific ceremony for black graduates. What's wrong with that? All right, let's say you go to a black specific graduation ceremony. That doesn't inherently mean that you hate white people. Doesn't inherently mean that you don't recognize that you have common, you know, things in common with white people or brown people or yellow people or Orthodox Jews or fervent evangelical Christians. That's just one aspect of identity. Here in America, right, we are free to develop many different aspects of our identity. Some people place their sexual identity as number one, or their professional identity as number one, or their educational identity as number one, or their religious or ethnic or, or racial or geographic or, or national identity, or they're a live streamer or a writer or an oboe player. All right? So just because you really get into playing the oboe doesn't mean that you can't be open to other forms of identity. Just because you enjoy, you know, going to a blacks-only event doesn't make you a hater or a bigot or a bad person or even, you know, a lesser person. With students in June, 
The event drew criticism from DePaul University professor Jason Hill, a black philosopher and political commentator. The universities are creating racists. Oh, my God. I want you to know, Jason. Look, it, the more you condemn racists, all right, just because they have their own graduation ceremony, the more you're condemning people to loneliness. The easiest way to overcome loneliness is to get together with your peeps and to make that A-OK. Jason Hill. I believe you added time to my life. The joy that I had in reading truth, and I, I kid you not, I have biofeedback. I feel that a, that a happiness or joy-inducing rush just passed through my body. The universities are creating racists, and it's a black professor. Well, maybe they are creating racists and happy people, right? Those two things can coexist, so... Helping some black students develop their in-group black identity, right, will make them less lonely and probably happier and more effective in life. If they want, they could live in an affordable home rather than having to live in, in many cases downtown where there are not only no homes in general, but it, an apartment is very expensive. So this is uh, Dennis talking about uh, advantages and disadvantages of working from home. On the other hand, not meeting people on a daily basis... I have to believe for many people there is a toll paid, especially if they're single. What, what do they do on a regular basis to meet people? I don't mean meet people to marry, just meet people. You live stream. 1-8-Prager-776-877-243-777-6. for a walk. You go to Starbucks. You know, I, I could broadcast, and I made this decision years ago, I, I could broadcast from anywhere I want because I, I have the machinery to do so. I can broadcast from home. But I chose to come into the studio and be with people. If, there's, if there is a solitary profession, I assure you it's talk show host. Right? I mean, uh, you sit basically alone and you talk to people. And, of course, I frequently do that on the road. But I chose, and it's, it's a better show because I interact with people. Now, some of the people I interact with are troubled souls. Yeah, he was about to say it was the nicest thing I ever said with him. And then just as he was about to say it, I said some of them are troubled souls. <laughs> uh, but, you know, troubled soul doesn't mean you're not a, a nice person. <laughs> uh, of course it's better to interact with people. I, why is that even debatable? So it, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, if there were no advantages to working at home, it would be a non-issue. People would have clamored to get back to the office. But I have to believe that there is something beneficial to getting dressed nicely, which even that is dying, which is a very, very big price that the society is paying, terrible price. But generally speaking, you are most people are dressed way more informally in the house than they are when they go to the office. I mean, there are people who spend the day in, in uh, I don't know, pajama bottoms. I, I don't know what, what it might be. And hopefully they would not go to the office Wearing pajama bottoms and some t-shirt top. 1-8 Prager 776, how has it worked out for you? And do you agree, even if it's worked out for you, that society is paying the price? Of course, there's another price, but I can't say that I, I'm particularly saddened by it. I mean, I, I have sympathy for the businesses that have been terribly affected. But San Francisco, uh, what was it, this major office building that was originally, what, $800 million? Is now $300 million or something? What's $300 it was three hundred million, and now it's what, one hundred million, thirty million? I don't know. Anyway, it's 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 lost a vast percentage of its equity. 
because nobody's going to the office in San Francisco. So all think of all the restaurants. Forget the office buildings, just all the restaurants that no longer have customers. It's an interesting question. So does the person who works at home take a lunch break and go to a restaurant? I guess not. They probably eat at home too, Is it, right? Would that make sense? Yeah. Or have it delivered, yeah? So you don't socialize that, that way either. You're not around people in the restaurant. You either have the food delivered or you make it yourself. But I, I can see it uh, being advantageous if you're trying to raise kids. I assume, in any event. Interesting. This is an interesting one. Bellflower, California, and Mark, hello. Good morning, Dennis. It's an honor to speak to you. Thank you. I've been listening to you for many, many, many years. Um, yeah, Dennis, the, uh, the lockdown uh, has created a lot of alcoholics. And what I mean by that is, is before the lockdown, I, would, I never would drink wine. And during it, I was introduced to it, and now I can't kick it. So I sought help. I'm a vet, and I went to the uh, veterans hospital, and I was told by my primary care physician that I'm not the only one, that it's a lot of people that are addicted to alcohol now. So that's something that is negative as far as what it's done, and is, it's not helping society because I'm missing work. A lot of people are missing work, and I think it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Wow. So you, you said you have friends to whom this has happened as well? Yes, yes. We would, we, during the lockdown, we would uh, watch movies and just drink. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, ho- I hope you get the help and, and can uh, recover from that. Yeah, I, I notice a lot of that. Let's go back to the Surgeon General. Quality of connections. And as our life has changed dramatically in these ways, we have to very intentionally prioritize relationships, rebuild the social infrastructure in our lives and our communities. If we don't, we will see a worsening crisis of loneliness. And that's why I'm issuing this advisory today on loneliness and isolation, because I want us to begin a conversation as a country about what I see as a profound public health threat, but a threat that we can address. I am ready to have this conversation. Stronger in-group identity, I think, is the easiest way to get connected. And I also lay out a framework for national right. strategy for what we can do about it. So let's jump to pillar four, reform the digital environment, because that's what you were just talking about. I'd like to hear the other solutions as well. But technology has transformed the way we live and work now, where these connections are happening on Zoom, online. I guess in many ways there's positive aspects to this because you can get to people that you couldn't otherwise get to. Mm-hmm. Um, help can get to people that, you know, even um, uh, health care. Um, but at the same time, our children are growing up in an environment of oversharing, overexposure, and I just don't know how you put the toothpaste pack in the tube without some real legislation that holds some of these tech companies accountable. What yeah, do you so, think? So I think that you're right. Yeah, why does it have to be legislation? Why does it have to be bullying by the government? Why not try persuasion? Right, that we need a combination of changes in practice and changes in policy to ensure that technology helps us and doesn't hurt us. Now, a lot of the benefits that you mentioned, Mika, are true, and, and I've experienced them, them as well. When I was growing up, it, it took you know a month for me to write a letter to relatives right. in India and then to get a letter back. Right. And now I can just video conference with them at the, you know. This is kind of boring. Well, then learn to romanticize your and life. This is exciting. Or chefs, pastry chef. That's you are the main right? character They've of your life. Food Network and have won so many competitions. And I decided to go try their croissants today. And wow, they're so good. Tell me this isn't exciting. This is so good. Be the main character of your life, Lathonius. Oh, candles. We need more candles. Light and love. And box. the main character of your life. Start a new book. I don't know about you, but I can't get too much of these videos. I think they're awesome.
So this comes from a New York Times article. A reminder to look for moments of beauty and embrace minimalism. Videos with the hashtag, posted overwhelmingly by young women, have been viewed more than 525 million times on TikTok. There are also more than 28,000 posts referring to it on Instagram, where images include sunsets by the water, elegantly plated dinners, and dainty cups of tea. Although some of the content appears aspirational, not all of us can afford a quick trip to Italy or run off to a field full of flowers dressed in flouncy spring fashion, most of it rejects the type of messaging that pushes people to acquire material things. And it likewise renounces the that girl aesthetic that promotes a one-size-fits-all path to well-being, replete with green juices, journaling, and working out. One Reddit commenter found joy even while washing coffee pots at work. After putting a little soap in the pot, I gently squeezed the bottle to blow bubbles out, the user wrote in a thread about romanticizing. I love bubbles. Another Reddit commenter wrote, I buy celebratory paper plates from the dollar store and use them when I feel like being festive. They have all different holidays, mermaids, robots, weddings. It's a boy. I go ham. On a YouTube channel called Malama Life, a lifestyle blogger in Hawaii watches the birds outside of her window, waters her plants, and slices her favorite fruits for breakfast. It gives me a reason to wake up in the morning, she said. Experts say the romanticizing trend may have endured in part because it is a new way of exploring mindfulness, the practice of paying attention to the present moment and becoming aware of your physical sensations, thoughts, and emotions in a non-judgmental way. It also offers a sense of agency, a feeling of control that has been sorely lacking as the pandemic grinds on. It's being positive about the things that life has to offer, regardless of whether the circumstance is what you imagined or wanted, said Ashley Ward, 26, whose 2020 TikTok video about romanticizing has been viewed more than 3 million times. You can't control everything in your life, but you do have control of how you view your situation. Jake Cohen, 28, a cookbook author whose avocado toast video was viewed almost 400,000 times on TikTok, said romanticizing is about finding meditations in our daily rituals. Some may see it as, quote, extravagant and pointless, he added. But if I want to romanticize my avocado toast or challah braiding, that's my business to bring some extra beauty to my routine. The trend draws wisdom from different domains like mindfulness, positive psychology, and the Danish custom of huga, but it's being presented in a way that's engaging and keeps it fresh, said Eric B. Lukes, an associate professor of epidemiology, behavioral and social sciences and medicine at Brown University and the director of the school's mindfulness center. Dr. Lukes's research and his new book, The Mindful College Student, illustrate how mindfulness can decrease stress and symptoms of depression and improve sleep quality and physical activity levels. Romanticizing your life intersects with mindfulness, he added, in part by helping us become more in tune with ourselves. If we're trying to build a life that makes us happy and put ourselves in the center of it in a kind way, well, each of us are different, he said. Which methods resonate most? That's self-awareness. Intertwined in the online conversation about romanticizing your life, is the main character trend. 
Videos with the hashtag have generated 6.9 billion views on TikTok, followed by its sibling, Main Character Energy. The main character meme spawned numerous parodies poking fun at movie cliches and narcissism. It's a fun way to bring to light some of the cringy things people romanticize, Ms. Ward said. But being the main character has also become a sincere reminder to let your actions drive the narrative, much like a film's protagonist would. In Ms. Ward's TikTok video, the camera is positioned high above, peering down at the beach where she reclines on a towel. The overhead shot conveys that she is the main character, and the simplicity of the imagery allows her earnest voiceover to take center stage. You have to start romanticizing your life, the narration begins. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character, because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by, and all of the little things that make it so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. So take a second and look around and realize that it's a blessing for you to be here right now. That's awesome. Main character energy. You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. And all the little things that make it so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. So take a second and look around and realize that it's a blessing for you to be here right now. Main character energy. I love it, man. So much wisdom in the New York Times. Her audio track has since been used by numerous other content creators, like Angela Liguori, a travel influencer and photographer who paired the sound with a montage of the far-off locations she visits. A main character has a full sense of agency, and what the pandemic took away from us was that sense of agency, said Sherry Turkle, a psychologist and professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who researches people's relationships with technology. Becoming the main character is also you a way of creating a more authentic self and making space for who you are, she added. Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. And all the little things that make it so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. So take a second and look around and realize that it's a blessing for you to be here right now. This is awesome. But how, how could one not be moved and excited? You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. And all the little things that make it so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. So take a second and look around and realize that it's a blessing for you to be here right now. Hey, what the heck? Where where are my viewers? I'm down. I've been live streaming for 39 minutes and 25 seconds, and my viewership is cratering. And I'm letting you know that you should take on main character energy. All right? You're the main character of your life. You should be celebrating that. You should be living and loving that. I think there's been a convergence of wanting to, in our isolation, find our identities in a kind of heightened way, and one in which we assert our individuality, she said. 
Olivia Berger, a mental well-being coach in London, has written about the various ways people can begin to romanticize their lives and has a 28-day challenge on her website to, quote, help you celebrate living for the smaller reasons and fall in love with life again. During the pandemic, she said, a lot of people have been looking for ways to create joy and find that happiness internally and make the most of what they had. It may also lead to a larger question. What truly brings us happiness? Is it that expensive vacation or that new piece of clothing? Or should we stop waiting for that picture-perfect moment and start enjoying the present? You can find so much joy in free things, Miss Berger said. Taking the time to jump in rain puddles with your child, for example. Or stopping to enjoy a cup of tea rather than multitasking while you drink it. It tastes so much better when I put my focus on it, she said. This Man, article was read by Christina that's Caron. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. That's a fantastic article. Right. So we should celebrate what's going on in England with, with the coronation. That's going to that's gonna bring a lot of uh, joy to people. Now you're wondering, what do Dennis, Dennis and Julie have to say? Fire someone than if you're, if you're not part of a union. But the reason why they didn't go after the police unions is because they knew if they would go after those, they'd have to go after the teachers unions as well. They couldn't selectively hate one union and then support another. That's, That's my theory. Because uh, the teachers uh, unions uh, are uh, a disaster. Yeah. Oh, they're malicious. They're, they're worse than a disaster. Right. They're actively destructive of children. And we see now President Biden is just totally... By the way, did you see this talking about actively destructive of children? An article in The Atlantic of, uh, that just came out. We have to bury the hatchet and no recriminations over mistakes made in the two years of COVID. In other words... What? Yes. Mistakes? What mistakes? Like locking kids down for two years. Oh my Don't God. start getting angry at teachers. Everybody makes well... Okay, so Dennis is all in on reminding the left of where it went too far, but uh, not a lot of introspection here where we had Michael Fomento on his show four or five times in February, March, April of 2020, saying that you know that there were only going to be a few dozen uh, casualties from COVID. And over a million Americans have died from it. Intention mistakes. This comes from the death of God. It was evil what they did. Evil. And, and it was done all over the world. Okay. And is it evil to underestimate it? Yeah. You can make the case it's a bad thing to overestimate COVID. But isn't it equally a bad thing to underestimate COVID? Not just in this country. Teachers hurt kids without giving a damn about them. They're hypochondriacs. And uh, hypochondriacs. Uh, over a million Americans have died. Right. It seemed like a reasonable concern. Maybe misplaced, went too far. Yeah, uh, the left you know, went too far. The right did not go far enough. And, and, they're, and they're woke. I am so angry at what they did. I'm so angry about what medicine did. What about being angry at yourself? You promoted that this is nothing. This is just a giant hoax. And over 20 million people have died around the world. Not allowing people to visit their dying relatives because, uh, because of COVID. In the name of health, the amount of evil that is done, I think in, in the modern period, Contemporary, not modern. Mm -hmm. More vile things have been done in the name of health than in any other name in free societies. And by the way... Uh, what about in the name of uh, anti-bigotry and anti-racism and uh, civil rights legislation and you know, the practice of lawfare to you know, break down traditional forms of community, right? Wait, I said this years ago. My motto, health uber alles. You know what that means? So in Germany, the, the, the song in the Nazi era was Deutschland über alles, Germany above all. So I've dropped Deutschland and just made help. Oh. 
Health uber alles. Health above all. One of the most startling and disappointing things that I've seen in the past two years is the way that doctors, who I growing up thought were the most morally upstanding people around us, alongside teachers too, but but especially doctors because they they I always thought they have an especially high moral obligation to not cause harm. That has been so deeply upsetting. And I have to tell you, for a time, I couldn't, I didn't really believe it. I didn't really believe that doctors were, were wreaking this much havoc. I thought, oh, maybe they just truly believe that the COVID vaccine is effective. Or maybe they truly believe that lockdown. Well, guess what? There's no group, no matter how righteous, that cannot wreak havoc, right? If you're going to do righteous things, right, you're going to shift the way people normally do things. And so you may think it's righteous, right? The doctors promoting uh, lockdowns, for example, had, had their reasons for why they thought it was righteous. Uh, this is just part of the human condition. It's not something that's unique to COVID. It's far warranted. No, it's, it's been a real fall from grace for me. I tell you, I look around now in society and I'm, I'm just, I wonder who, my, who can I trust? My heart breaks for your generation. We, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't trusted like, every institution when I was I don't trust age. anything. And well, you're right. You're right not to. Yeah, I don't trust anything. And why does she not trust any institutions in part? Because... She's fallen under the influence of Dennis Prager. who says she's right not to trust any institution. So I'm fine with that. Like, be skeptical of institutions. Then who do you believe, right? She believes in Dennis Prager. But uh, Dennis Prager, just as much as the CDC, deserves skepticism. I deserve skepticism. All right? So people who don't trust institutions, like uh, Julie Hartman here and Dennis Prager, there are you know, human beings that they trust. Right? There are human organizations that they trust. So maybe those other forms of group identity deserve scrutiny as well. Well, what scares me so much, and I talked to you about this on the phone the other day, is that people my age, like- Remember remember what you were about to say. Okay. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Just uh, two days ago, at the Atlantic, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. I wasn't in the- it, uh, oh, he, he says, I wasn't in the dark about COVID. So he, he thought, he agreed with Michael Fomento that, uh, you know, at most a few dozen people would die from COVID. But he's letting us know that he is so much wiser. He's claiming he wasn't in the dark about COVID. But he was in the dark about COVID, just as much as the excessive lockdown people were in the dark about COVID. And we do need to forgive each other, right? We do need to get out of these endless cycles of reaction. And, you know, recognize the humanity, the flawed nature of humanity in our opponents and in ourselves. It's dark about COVID. In April 2020, I, I headlined. You can have some forgiveness and you can have some amnesty and also you can hold people accountable. Right? There needs to be a mixture of holding people accountable and recognizing the flawed nature of, of people and organizations. Why not both? Why not both forgiveness and accountability? tweeted and wrote a column and broadcast it's the greatest international mistake in human history mm -hmm. i said that it was vile what was being done to children it was cruelty sadism not allowing people to be with dying relatives i wasn't in the dark and i'm not a doctor well how about what came out a few days ago about the department of homeland security working alongside silicon valley to shadow man and suppress quote-unquote misinformation oh, oh, oh that's well that's that's so so those people yeah. shouldn't be held accountable they should right. get amnesty uh, exactly so, so yeah so you were saying that you don't I feel, you feel so bad. Yes. yes, because when you grew up, you trusted every institution. And I'm telling you that I don't trust any institution now, and it's been a real fall from grace, and it's been very sad for me. That being said, I am happy that I am at least aware of it. Even I shouldn't say happy. I am thankful that I am at least aware of it, because what scares me even more is that so many people, including my own best friends. Okay, so these gurus also deserve scrutiny just as much as the CDC and uh, medical organizations and teachers unions. So... 
There's a terrific podcast decoding the gurus. And they refer to a guru as the standard definition of an influential teacher or popular expert, particularly those who make liberal use of pseudo-profound bullshit, right? Referring to speech that is persuasive, creates the appearance of profundity with little regard for truth or reference to relevant expertise. This is what Dennis Prager does. The recurring characteristics identified collectively trend toward negative traits. Right, so you've got galaxy brainness. Right, someone who presents ideas that appear to be too profound for an average mind to comprehend. He wasn't in the dark about COVID, right? Even though he he was in the dark about COVID, completely wrong about COVID on innumerable occasions. But his self-presentation, self-conception is, ah, he's a galaxy brain, never in the dark about COVID. But uh, many of his insights are, in truth, trivial, if not nonsensical. Gurus present themselves as fonts of wisdom, right? He's presenting himself here as a font of wisdom doesn't take into account how awful he was with regard to underestimating COVID. But this wisdom is an all-encompassing knowledge that tends to span multiple disciplines and topics. Their arguments link together disparate concepts such as quantum mechanics, logic, and the nature of consciousness. Guru will often present himself as a polymath who can offer novel insights with reference to many different fields. They will often allude to their own accomplishments. They will exaggerate them to a shameless degree. They will confidently offer hot takes on technical topics with a wave of their hand, dismiss the perspectives of genuine experts. This is a confidence trick that relies on the recipient being convinced of the guru's unique intellectual power. So you get uh, all sorts of references to higher specialist literature, the use of jargon and technical terms. Close reference inspection, these references tend to be entirely superfluous and tangential to the argument being presented. So the guru is most effective when the recipient does not understand them at all. They're just merely illusions intended to signal a deeper level of knowledge. Then another characteristic of Google, such as Jordan Peterson and Dennis Prager and Russell Brand. Being a guru is a social role. A guru is only a guru if there are people who regard them as such. So how gurus interact with their followers and critics, their in-group and out-group is revealing. Gurus are not usually cult leaders, but the social groups they cultivate, often with themselves positioned as intellectual leaders, have many elements of cults. So a key characteristic of cults is the establishment of clear in-group and out-group identities, particularly between cult members, admirers, and outsiders. There will often be internal discrimination made within the cult, such as between an inner circle of favored members, the broader normal members, the problematic or troublesome menders who may need to be reprimanded, excluded, or exercised. Yeah, that's me. I, I became a problematic and troublesome member of the Dennis Prager cult. So in general, cultish behavior is characterized by emotional manipulation and control. So gurus tend to act in a manipulative fashion with their followers and potential allies. This often takes the form of excessive flattery, such as intimations that their followers are more perceptive, more morally worthy, more interested in the pursuit of truth than outsiders, Guru will often put some effort into signaling a close and personal relationship with their followers, encouraging the development of parasocial ideation. Praise and regard for the guru is usually reciprocated. Disagreement or criticism is dismissed as coming from an unworthy person who does not truly understand the significance of the guru's ideas. Guru may wish to avoid the appearance of being a controlling leader. Right? It's inconsistent with the flattery of their followers and the off-spoken idea of cultivating a community of like-minded and clear-sighted individuals. But they never want their privileged position challenged. They may wistfully talk of a desire to engage with good-faith critics who 
truly understand their ideas and lament that they haven't been able to achieve the robust criticism they desire. Of course, this is a sham. And then another key aspect of uh, being a guru, which uh, Prager is embodying here, it's anti-establishmentarianism. So it's necessary that the orthodoxy, the establishment, the mainstream media, and the expert consensus are always wrong, or at least blinkered and limited, and are generally incapable of grappling with the real issues. So a guru can seldom agree with the establishment, because if a guru agrees with the establishment, then why would anyone pay attention to the guru? Right? It is crucial to the guru's appeal that they are offering unique insight, a fresh, hot take, not available elsewhere. So the guru's popularity benefits if this iconoclastic perspective coincides with the prejudices and intuitions of their followers. So gurus are naturally drawn to topics where there is a split between the expert consensus and popular public opinion, such as climate change, GMOs, vaccinations, lockdowns. So if a guru is merely agreeing with the New York Times or with an expert consensus on a topic such as COVID, there is less reason to listen to the guru rather than the experts. So the guru is highly motivated to undertake epistemic sabotage. Epistemology means how do we know what we know? So how do we know what we know? Do, does the thesis replicate, such as with the importance of IQ? Does it uh, provide uh, predictive power? Does it provide explanatory power? So those are three ways we can know what we know. So the more the guru's followers distrust standard sources of knowledge, such as that emanating from universities, the greater the perceived value that the guru provides. It is in Dennis Prager and right-wing gurus and talk show hosts and pundits' advantage to disparage the orthodoxy, the mainstream, the other sources of wisdom, because they want to be seen as the fount of wisdom. Now, the guru also has natural tendencies towards self-aggrandizement, which may involve emphasizing their own academic intellectual recognition. Then grievance mongering, right? They, they've got a grievance with the outside world, they tend to be self-aggrandizing and narcissistic. They have a Cassandra complex. Their heightened insight gives them a superior ability to predict the future, right? This is what Dennis Prague was just saying. So they will enjoy dwelling on those instances in which they made a purportedly correct prediction, right? This is what Prague is doing now. He doesn't want to mention and acknowledge the times when he got it wrong. So a heightened sense of how the world is not right and ought to be fixed and that they are the persons to do it, this is a common feature for gurus. Unfortunately, the broader public fails to recognize their genius and to heed their advice, so the world lurches from calamity to calamity. So gurus position themselves as a Cassandra. They see the future. We're becoming like Nazi Germany, says Dennis. We're becoming like Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. He's warning us of these possible calamities. He says we're in a civil war already, and all this Evil could be avoided if only Dennis was heeded. And the followers then gain a positive role for themselves. They are supporting, defending, and promoting the guru and making the world a better place. So gurus tend to have revolutionary theories. They tend to peddle pseudo-profound bullshit. They engage in a great deal of conspiracy mongering because if the mainstream and the orthodox and the establishment are, are wrong, then the only way to consistently maintain this argument is to buy into conspiracy theories that you have the real special knowledge that nobody else can see, right? 
Now, to be a guru, you must set yourself up not only as uniquely insightful, but above and apart from all orthodoxies, from the establishment, from established political and ideological groups. So the guru must go beyond standard heterodoxy, contrarianism, and skepticism into the realm of conspiratorial ideation. This is because the expert consensus tends to supply the most reasonable and evidence-based perspectives based on current information. So the guru is in the position of needing to provide a strongly contrasting perspective and to supply the argument that backs up their bold claims in a compelling way. So this leads them inevitably down the path of bespoke conspiracy mongering. Bespoke means individualized. With an alternative view of events that authoritative sources can't or won't tell you about. So conspiracy theories require a suppressive network to explain away the lack of evidential support and why nobody serious is willing or able to accept their theories. totally trust these institutions and don't know how thoroughly corrupt they are. And that's worse because at least, you know, I, I'm very careful about who I choose as my doctor, for instance. Well, it's, it's they not are way worse for their, them psychologically. True, but it's worse for them in the long term. I would rather know than not know. No, no uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it, it's like the old question, if you could be uh, given an injection to be happy all the time and unaware of what is happening, would right. you take it? You wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it. I don't know if your friends would, but that's the world they live in. Well, I would, I mean, you're right. I wouldn't take it. But the problem is they may be happy in the short term, but then long term when they take, uh, you know, right. many doses uh, of the COVID vaccine and God forbid something happens to their health, they're not going to be happy. So the, th the thing that continues to just amaze me is how little people know about what's really going on in this country. For instance, I keep mentioning I was having a debate with this person about the Electoral College, the same person I was having a debate with about Trump versus Biden. And I said to him, this is a 65-year-old corporate lawyer he, I could tell that he was in some ways quite well-read, smart guy. And I said, because he was talking about uh, integrity, and I said, well, do you think what the Clintons did in 2016 with the whole Russiagate scandal is, you know, morally upstanding? And I said, are you aware of the Steele dossier? No. He had no idea what the Steele dossier was. I said, are you aware of the special counsel John Durham investigation that has found that both uh, James Comey and Robert Mueller lied about certain very important things about their sources of the dossier? And nope, had no idea. I say, do you know that Mark Zuckerberg gave $450 million to privatize election procedures or that Twitter actively suppressed the Hunter Biden story and in fact removed the New York Post, the New York Post account because the New York Post was the first one to bring it up? Nope. Okay, but luckily Julie and Dennis have the special knowledge, so they'll tell you what's really going on. All right, uh Pack West Bank Corp stock falls 55% in after hours trading. Remember, I did a big show two weeks ago about the coming disaster in both commercial property and regional banks. No idea. Do you know that the Department of Homeland Security was or collaborating with Silicon Valley to shadow ban things? No idea. I can go on and on and on. It's one of my mottos. And they laugh at me. We know what they don't know. They laugh. They laugh at me like right. I was on QAnon, whatever the no, hell QAnon they, is. they laugh at you like Bill Maher laughed at me <sighs> when I said the left says men menstruate. People can watch it on YouTube. It's gone viral. Millions of views. I was <sighs> laughed at. Who says that, Dennis? You know what? It just happened. I had Juan Williams on, a major liberal commentator. He's on Fox and he writes for The Hill. To his great credit, he came on the show. And I said to him, well, I'm just curious, what do you think about having six-year-olds in so many schools go to, um, what do you call it? The uh... Drag Queen Story Hours? Yeah, Drag Queen Story Hours. <laughs> How did I know exactly what you were talking yeah, about? Because like, of, I saw the look I, on your face. I have a blank on that, that terminology. Drag Queen Story Hour. Mm -hmm. and, and sexualizing children at the age of five and six and telling them that they're not boys and girls because they don't even use boys and girls in most schools right. anymore. And he, his answer was, I, I can't believe it's happening. You know, you'll find this to be interesting. I have a suspicion that some, not, not my close friends, but some of my more peripheral friends have this false notion that I've been radicalized because they truly believe that the things that I just mentioned to you, which are 100% true, and by the way, shouldn't even be 
call deemed right-wing beliefs because they're just facts they think that those things are conspiracy theories they look at they think that i have gone on to QAnon again whatever the hell QAnon is i still don't know and i do a lot of conservative research never met anyone who's been on QAnon, never heard of it when before the left made a huge deal of it they think that i go on these like crazy rabbit hole radical right-wing sites and come up with these conspiracy theories that are totally fact and mainstream i mean do you i know it seems obvious to say but it, it just i can't believe that this is our world there are real really bad things going on and they think it's just made up that's why i told you these two stories oh my gosh yeah, so I, I again, I, I get the sense that a lot of them so, want to distance themselves from me because uh, they think I'm nuts. I think we'll end with this. I got a question from a young person on my fireside chat. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, I do a fireside chat every week for PragerU. There are a lot of viewers around the world, mostly young people. And it's a half hour every week. We've done 262 of them. So that's a lot. You can really binge. Anyway, I got a question from some young person somewhere. How do I know what to trust? How do I know what's true? It's a very, very real question. So I like being under pressure. Because I do my best under pressure. Others are different, but I do. I do too. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's because of all my swimming. Oh, that's right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't swim. <laughs> I mean, I can swim, but I, not competitively. Anyway, I came up with an interesting answer. I came up with a few answers. What do you think of this answer? I said, those who wish to censor others are usually lying. And I've never come up, I had never come up with that answer. Because it's a very good question. How do you know who's telling the truth? On, on any given, is it the left or the right? Dennis is so good at coming up with these amazing sounding insights, but is it true, right? The, the left wants to you know, censor, let's say, uh, racial vilification, wants to censor uh, vaccine skepticism, etc. Uh, they they lying right if they want to you know reduce the amount of racial vilification on social media i I don't think they're lying so no i don't think there's any connection between the desire to censor say social media and whether or not one is telling the truth it sounds an amazing insight but it falls apart upon analysis well if you are telling the truth you are okay with those who differ with you speaking their minds. And in fact, you want them to. That's right. Because it exposes Let's, their lies. That, yes. If you, what you're saying is really true, so you want So this should that. be a giveaway to all. Unless you think that, you know, it lead to thousands of people dying. Then if you believe that uh, without more censorship on, on Twitter, thousands of innocent people will die, right? Your, your motivation is not, you know, primarily because you're lying. You know, your motivation is because you're trying to save the lives of thousands of innocent people. You may be wrong, but it's not primarily about uh, your your lying. So I just thought this was a, a classic trip, you know, showing uh, Julie going down the, the rabbit hole with uh, Dennis Prager. Now you're probably wondering, Forty, tell me more about this. Good to general. be with you, Brett. It sounds like this is a really serious problem. It is, Brett. It turns out millions of people in our country are struggling with loneliness and isolation. And I know this in part because as I've traveled around the country, I've heard so many stories from college students, uh, from busy parents, uh, from elderly people in our country who all talk about their struggles with being alone. They don't use that word often alone, but they'll often say things like, you know, I feel like I have to go through everything in my life by myself, or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, no one would even care. Loneliness is both incredibly common with one in two adults reporting measurable levels of loneliness, but it's also concept. Okay, you can hate the Biden administration, but, you know, don't hate this guy. He's doing something good. This is important. This is good. 
Kudos to the Biden administration and this gentleman. Potential for our health. It increases the risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide, but also raises the risk of heart disease and dementia, stroke, and premature death. Now, in the write-up that you had on this, uh, the warning, you say loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It's associated with greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, as you just mentioned. But you go on to say the mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And that's, those are staggering stats when you listen to that. But how do you get to that? 15 cigarettes a day is there scientific so you may loathe the woke and i I assume that this guy is woke but a lot of our best doctors are woke a a lot of our you know best uh, entrepreneurs and inventors of of new technology are are woke like a lot of brilliant people are woke backup to get you to that statement? There's been a growing body of evidence actually over the years that's been telling us just how significant the consequences of loneliness are. And to understand why this has such an effect on our body, we have to recognize that for thousands of years we evolved to actually be together, to have strong, trusting relationships, and our survival depended on that. Uh, and That is so important. Yeah, we did not evolve as individuals with certain inalienable rights, as the Declaration of Independence claims, all right? We evolved as members of a community, of a tribe, right? People are best understood as members of a tribe or a nation, a a community, an extended family, not as individuals with certain inalienable rights. So this liberal notion that we're all just a bunch of individuals with certain inalienable rights, that predisposes people to loneliness and to a foggy and flawed understanding of reality. When we were separated from one another, that actually put us in a stress state where our safety was at risk. We we're more likely to get attacked by a predator. So when we still experience loneliness and isolation, we feel the stress. Of- right. You are less likely to be attacked by a predator if you're in the middle of the pack. If you're not in the middle of the pack, you're in danger. If you are completely out in the forest of life on your own, you're very much in danger. You've got to look at Chimp Empire on Netflix and see what happened to Porky Pie. Right. He went off on his own. Then... He was found by members of an outgroup, and they slaughtered him. Right, rest in peace, porcupine. Now, if it's short-lived, because we pick up the phone and call a friend or go see someone we love, we might be fine. But it's when that stress state is chronic, when it's long-lived, that's when that chronic stress can drive inflammation in our body and can increase the risk of physical illness. How much do you think the lockdowns around COVID, the remote schooling for children, now is factoring in to this feeling of loneliness, that we are just coming out of this pandemic. COVID really poured fuel on the fire. It was a fire that was already burning. Uh, the, certainly being separated from one another, our kids not being able to be in schools, uh, that was tough uh, for many of us, and it increased that sense of loneliness and isolation. But even before the pandemic, we were seeing extraordinarily high levels of loneliness. And I'd say for the last five, six decades, we've seen... This is a much bigger problem in America than in Australia. Like America has never had the level of social connection social capital and social trust that England has had, right? America doesn't even approach the levels of social trust, social connection, social trust that England has had or Australia has had, let alone the far more intense levels of social connection, social trust, social capital that France and Germany enjoy, let alone the even more intense and high levels of social cohesion, social trust, social capital that... uh, countries like Japan enjoy. So America, because of its diversity, Americans feel very little in common with each other, which tends to predispose people to loneliness without that strong in-group identity. Decreasing participation in community organizations and faith organizations. Yeah, and why are people decreasing participation? Because you weren't allowed them, not you, the Surgeon General, but America's civil rights laws 
reduce people's freedom of association so men just can't go join a service club just to be with men. Civic organizations uh, and athletic leagues. We've also, though, seen that technology has fundamentally changed how we've been interacting with one another. It's changed. So you've got to check out uh, Chimp Empire on uh, Netflix, man. Uh, what, do you, what do we say? Press S for, for porcupine? I mean, he was just minding his own business. He was a good boy. He was just getting his life together. He wasn't hurting anyone. He was just being an ape, just walking through the forest, right? But he was separated from the pack. And then the Westerners, right? The Western ships here, they're tracking him down. Porcupine is eating some fruit. They're eating from branches, eating from fruit. And these Westerners ships, right? This elk group, they track him down, they chase him, and they kill him just for the sheer joy of killing. They don't even eat him. Chimps are territorial creatures. The Ngogo group lives. So it's not just uh, chimps who are territorial, right? Human beings are territorial too. Within a defined territory, surrounded on all sides by other hostile chimps. To make sure their resources are safe, they patrol their borders. Right, and so should we. We also should uh, try to make sure that our resources are safe. We should patrol our borders. Right, because people will come and take and take and ruin and Patrol is a dangerous business. Kill. Patrolling your borders is a dangerous business. What's even more dangerous is to not patrol your borders. We should learn from Chimp Empire. But the importance of defending the territory is so great that even the most unlikely candidates sometimes take part. Even Porcupine. Oh, this is Gus. Right, Gus is an orphan. He has no mother or father. He's generally excluded from the group, but he's brought on the patrol. Each chimp needs to weigh it up. We build the wall. That's what it's saying. We build the wall. Even widows and orphans, even Porky, Pork Pie, and Gus. Right? Pork Pie is this old, old chimp. Right? He goes along to patrol the border. Right? We build the wall. That would bring America together, is we build the wall and make it 30 feet taller and stronger. Is it worth the risk? I don't mean the literal we build the wall that turned out to be a scam and people you know, uh, getting tried and convicted of, of ripping people off. I disavow that. I mean the spiritual we build the wall. We should spiritually get together and spiritually build walls against evil. Pork pie. Right? Pork pie is far from the toughest or bravest of chimps. Poor pork pie. But his final thing for him, it's probably worth the danger. One of his final acts on Earth is he joined in patrolling the borders of his people's territory against Alcruz. The chimps are heading to their northern border. Patrols can cover wall. many miles and last for several tense hours. Love bites, but we still build the wall. Here's something that all right-thinking Americans can uh, get behind. Ah, so they, they just tracked down and uh, ate a monkey. But uh, hunting, all right, brings, brings the chimps together. They all get involved in 
hunting meat these monkeys is a welcome source of nourishment for chimps. But that's not its only value. The sharing of meat is important socially and politically. Jackson shares with his allies, and more than anyone else, he shares with Miles. Right, bring people At the together. same time, Chance he purposely leaves others out. Abram's exclusion is a sign that, for now, Jackson still holds power at N'Gogo. A victorious patrol and a successful hunt. Today. Today's been a good day. Right, Jackson remains on top. Right, this is all episode one, Chimp Empire, Paradise. How to keep paradise. Now they find dead pork pie. You have to be prepared to build the wall to fight for your paradise, for your ingrate. And now they discover that their mate pork pie is dead, been killed by an outgroup of Western chimps. I mean, just the devastation on their faces. Alright, because they failed to be sufficiently vigilant alone. about the threat from outgroups and killed by a rival group. Right in the middle of Ngogo territory. Right in the middle of their own territory, one of their own got the murdered chimp can be killed here. by an outgroup. It means this forest kingdom and all the chimps in it are no longer safe. They're no longer safe, right? They're going to have to build the wall. They're going to have to take some pretty strong measures. So, episode two. Right, togetherness, like killing things, build social trust, going on patrol, build social trust, like killing monkeys, grooming Most each other. Most of the group are happily feeding. Rollins and Damien are not. Patrolling is partly about guarding resources, but that's not all. Chimps will always try to expand their territory if they can. Just like people. And they do it by finding and attacking rivals. Not very work. If they can outnumber them. So Rollins and Damien can't go alone. The other males will need to follow. So you're saying 40, I read in Wired that a tiny blog took on surveillance in China and won. Tell me more. What, what, what's going on here? A tiny blog took on big surveillance in China and won. 
A tiny security blog went up against China's biggest surveillance camera companies and ignited a new battle in the U.S.-China tech war. Written by Amos Zeberg for Wired. Narrated by Vikas Adam. Seated at his desk at home in the U.S., at a location he keeps secret, John Honovich was on his laptop, methodically scouring every link on a website for a conference half a world away. Hike Vision, the world's largest security camera manufacturer, was hosting the event, the 2018 AI Cloud World Summit, in its hometown of Hangzhou, a city of about 10 million people not far from Shanghai. Honovich, the founder of a small trade publication that covered video surveillance technology, wanted to find out what the latest Hike Vision gear could do. He zeroed in on one section of the conference agenda titled Eco-Friendly, Peaceful, Relaxed, and found a description of an AI-powered system installed around Mount Tai, a historically sacred mountain in Shandong. A video showed Hike Vision cameras pointed at tourists climbing the thousands of stone steps leading to the famous peak. Piano music played, as a narrator explained, in Mandarin with English subtitles, that the cameras were there to identify all visitors to ensure the safety of all. The video cut to a shot of a computer screen, and Hanovich hit pause. He saw a zoomed-in view of one visitor's face. Below it was data that the camera's AI had inferred. Hanovich downloaded the video and took screenshots of the computer screen, for safekeeping. Later, with the help of a translator, he scrutinized every bit of text on that screen. One set of characters, the translator explained, suggested each visitor was automatically sorted into categories. Age, sex, wearing glasses, smiling. When Hanovich pointed at the fifth category and asked, What's this? The translator replied, Minority. Hanovich pressed, Are you sure? The translator confirmed there was no other way to read it. Hanovich was shocked. Shocked. In his many years in the industry. Okay, so depending on your disposition, depending on your situation, right, knowing about anyone in your vicinity who's not part of your in-group can be very important. If Pork Pie had known that there were, you know, a rival group of chimps around, he might still be with us and blessing us with his presence, right? I, I converted to an insular in-group, Orthodox Judaism. I learned there are some mysteries in this way of life that are only available to those in the in-group, in the dance. And this dance can only soar if everyone in the dance is Orthodox, right? So I don't see anything inherently bad about such an interest in safety. It's usually adaptive, meaning it helps us to survive. People and animals usually feel safest when they're with their own. So some people find this creepy. They want us to transcend our base needs for in-groups and out-groups. And in some situations, this elevated universalist response is the more adaptive response. But other times, it's the more dangerous response. Just look at what happened to pork pie. So when is when? situation right determines which is the best response right if you're freaking out about your security right if you're worried about your survival what would you not want to know about any potentially dangerous strangers entering your turf so sometimes safety should be number one priority for the individual and the group even if this means a suspicion of outsiders even a readiness to oppress others but nothing good happens when individuals or groups are not feeling safe so when I watch Chimp Empire, points out the chimps are our closest animal ancestor. They're highly territorial. They're always looking to expand their territory. 
while keeping close watch on outsiders intruding. When a group catches a chimp from another group alone, they kill him. When rival gangs of chimps meet, the weaker group runs away. So the strong chimps take what they want, and the weak chimps endure what they must. So Pork Pie is a chimp in the main group who gets isolated and slaughtered in the heart of his own group's territory. So I suspect that uh, Pork Pie would have appreciated surveillance technology, would have notified him that outgroup chimps were near. If he had something like that, he might still be with us. So back to this story. In December 2020, an IPVM employee made a blockbuster discovery, discovered that Huawei and the Chinese AI unicorn called Megvi had tested a literal wigger alarm. Right, the system uses AI to analyze people's faces if it determines that a passerby was Uyghur, right, these are Muslims in China, it would send an alert to authorities, or it could send an alert. So Huawei wasn't publicly known to be participating in China's racial surveillance system. Back to So they go on patrol together, they hunt together, like they humans, group together. Chimpanzees are social creatures. But unlike us. So being social is the opposite of loneliness. But being social means you've got an in-group, and stronger your attachment to your in-group, the more likely you are to have negative views of out-groups. Us, their ability to form relationships is limited to members of their own group. Why can't they be more woke? Why can't they be more universalist? They are inescapably territorial. So sad. And tribal. So sad. Maybe human beings are too. Maybe human beings are inescapably have an element of territoriality and tribal identity. Maybe that's just how we're wired. They are in conflict with a bigger, more powerful group. So the odds are stacked against them. For now. Yeah, when you're in conflict with a bigger, more powerful group, right, doesn't necessarily mean you'll lose, but if you're betting, that's the way to bet. But this smaller group is more cohesive. It has high levels of social trust, higher levels of social cohesion. They do everything together, unlike the bigger group. So a small group that's highly cohesive can punch way above its weight. Right. Vice. Did you think that Vice was going to revolutionize news? Tempt oh, man. Now, oh, bloody heck. I had it all lined up. Narrated by Noah. History. As Benz and Money Men threw sponsorship at the company in an attempt to capture some of the magic for their own ailing brands. The future of news was young and online, and there was no going back. Historians of the craft of news gathering will record that Vice News changed the visual grammar of the medium. By marrying a cinematic visual style with the tempo and immediacy of breaking stories, and pioneering the use of handheld DSLR cameras, Vice News re-aestheticized TV news. And by having its young reporters talk casually to the audience, like friends, in the middle of the world's worst chaos, 
The old world of buttoned-up correspondence, stiffly lecturing the camera, suddenly looked like a relic from the age of black and white. But while the big networks quickly learned to copy Vice's style to the point it has become the norm, the fundamental challenge of all news broadcasting, how to make the most difficult and expensive content on earth pay for itself, had still not been solved. In the end, it was all a mirage. As is the nature of the trade, it was always a source of pride and of glittering awards to obtain better combat footage than anyone else, always getting closer to the action, dancing... And um, Willis says, I don't understand YouTube. YouTubers playing clips or sound only. Uh, often that's a way to avoid a copyright strike. So with the Netflix chimp empire, as long as I just play audio, not video from it, I'm not going to get a copyright strike. Describing what they see, radio shows are getting notorious for this. Right, so I have to deal in reality, and there will be negative consequences if I show you certain clips. Sing at the edge of death like a gladiator in the amphitheater for the audience's thrill. So do you play the audio, even though it'd be much more exciting to play the video too, if you're not going to be able to get away with playing the video? So sometimes aiming for the best right, is the enemy of just aiming for better. So I think the clips from Chimp Empire, you know, illustrated certain basic uh, tendencies within human beings. Now we have a prefrontal cortex, right? We can overcome these tendencies if that is in our advantage, but that we have these tribal territorial instincts cannot be denied. And delectation. The highest word of praise from an exec was gnarly. But what neither fans nor critics of what they saw as our recklessness understood was that the bang-bang was merely a vehicle with which to smuggle in serious analytical reportage of poorly understood conflicts and revolutions. Vice's central insight was that if you framed the story right and shot it well enough, you could persuade teens and early twenty-somethings to watch in-depth explorations of Syrian rebel justice systems or the intricacies of South Sudan's civil war. So Vice has uh, apparently gone bankrupt, and it's a reminder that sometimes Chuck Johnson's way ahead of the curve. So Chuck Johnson wrote ten years ago on the history of fraud at Vice. Now it's filing for bankruptcy. So ten years ago, he wrote for the Daily Caller, Vice founder, famous for truth-telling is a history of lies and that vice was built on lies. Chuck Johnson, way ahead of the curve. Middle-aged execs from traditional networks had always claimed young people didn't care about granular detail or distant wars in Africa, but this, apart from stories about drugs, was always by far the most popular content, judging from YouTube views and comments. The audience never demands dumbing down, Viewers want nuance, shades of grey, and moral ambiguity. They want to see the world as it is, not as it ought to be. While the rewards in the early days were mismatched to the risk, the degree of experience offered to young journalists was unrivaled, a huge draw to those with an adventurous streak. Journalists at the beginning of their careers were given access to stories the networks reserved for their hardened veterans... So why do 
intellectuals tend to be mainly on the left. I've suffered this all my life, that, well, at least ever since I became a conservative, in, which was in May 1968 in, in Paris. Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't know, I had a very clear idea of how to articulate it. All I knew was that when I looked down the street and saw all these um, rowdy students throwing stones at policemen, I, I just said to myself, whatever they believe, I, I believe the opposite. Right. And then I didn't know what it was. Uh, and, um, and then it was a sort of lifetime's work to find out what the opposite is. So, and I somewhat arrogantly came to the conclusion uh, that it's, um, if you start thinking about politics uh, in an intellectual way, you are likely to be on the left uh, because that provides a systematic solution, an answer to the questions, gives, puts it all in a system, and, and also gives you a rather dignified and self-congratulatory place in the system. But once you started thinking, if you think a bit harder and longer about it, you'll move back to what you would have been if you had never thought at all. You know, right. and that's, my, that's my view, it's what, it's what an intellectual conservative is. He's, it's someone who articulates the real reasons for not having reasons. Say that again. Someone who articulates the real reasons for not having reasons, hmm. but just feeling and doing what's right. Right. Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, it's, I think it's Yeats. Yeats has a wonderful poem, uh, Easter 1916. Mm. And, and in there he has the come let us mock at the great that had such burdens on the mind and toiled so hard and late to leave some monument behind. He wrote that when he witnessed uh, some Irish um, revolutionaries destroy right. a beautiful uh, house of a very wealthy uh, landed English, uh, Anglo-Irish yeah. person. And in a lot of ways, that poem articulates that idea that it's very easy to destroy uh, yes. and tear down. And, and one of the, I think one of the things that's so tempting for many people, because the world is so troubling to so many people, and, and so many people suffer in this world, and, and a lot of what the, the liberal left tends to, to rely on is, is that sense of indignation that a lot of idealistic people feel, because yeah. there are things that are deeply wrong with, with the world. But then, when we look historically at, at, at how when these people have gotten into power, whether they're, I mean, people tend to forget that the, the, the Nazis were actually, they were quite bohemian in a lot mm. of ways. They, they had a lot of leftist politics. Certainly their economics was, was tend to be collectivist and, and, and they were national socialists. Okay, that's nonsense. The, the Nazis weren't uh, people of the, of the left. They're, they're very much on the right. Instinct on the left is that negative instinct, that things are wrong. Uh, and it must, they must be rectified. They can only be rectified, however, by the seizure of power. And so we're going to seize power in order to rectify them. But once you've got the power, the negative is still there in your heart mm. because it, it's driven you all along. You know, that's the thing which has inspired you. So you set about destroying things. Uh, punish well, the left wants us to transcend our human nature, to become ever more elevated, ever more removed from our tribal territorial instincts people you you find classes who are to blame you know the jews yeah. the bourgeoisie whoever right. it might be yeah. uh, and you don't get out of that negative structure right. and I, I felt that's what i felt very strongly in 1968 you know that okay of course there are things that are wrong in france but there are also things that are beautiful and right and you've got to go through this and come back and rescue those things which is much more important than destroying a few obstacles along the way right yeah so people on the right they think that traditional ways of doing things probably better than untested newfangled ways of doing things Right, uh, Owen Benjamin says, Atheists bring up a good point. You can't prove God with science. That's why it's faith. You also can't prove evolution, vaccine effectiveness, or that you're standing on a spinning ball with science. It is faith. My faith leads to gratitude, abundance in a large family. Faith in godless emptiness and being defended from monkeys leads to despair, addiction, isolation, and suicide. I can draw a correlation that one faith is better than the other. My faith is not in the boner hat pope or any of the nonsense just in the divine order a forgiving fair and eternal creator so how can you get a handle on what's true or false so if you got a thesis that's testable that provides predictive power that provides explanatory power that uh, consistently replicates then you're probably dealing with something that is true
Um, Blake has an interesting, the, uh, he says, the hand of vengeance found the bed to which the purple world. It's extremely corrupting to see things in this Foucauldian way. You know, you, instead of asking the question, is what uh, Hamza saying true? I ask the question, you know, what power is advancing behind that? You, know, you then disappear from the picture. Right. And also what you said disappears from right. the picture. Yeah. I'm not, no longer engaging with you, I to thou, at all. Right. Uh, uh, because th without the concept of truth, there is no... So... Ronnie Gordman, who I've had on the show many times, he wrote a terrific book on conservative victimology, conservative sense of cultural oppression. He uses Michel Foucault to deconstruct the left. So Foucault's not all nonsense, trying to understand like who benefits from an arrangement or a rhetoric or an ethic. Right? That seems like one reasonable way of you know, trying to understand what's going on real engagement between people. All I'm seeing is the power that's speaking through you. And that's, um, of course, you can look at the whole of culture in that way, which is essentially what the postmodern curriculum is, right. taking one writer, one philosopher, one musician after another, and just talking about, you know, like uh, Susan McClary on Beethoven. This is uh, fantasies of rape speaking through right. this music, you know. Right. Uh, anyway, it's, it's extremely boring after a while because it's totally well, mechanical. It's, it's a lens. I mean, I, one of the things I say about critical theorists, I, I, you know, that if it was a lens, that it might be useful sometimes to just yeah. peer through that lens perpetuates this negativity and has done. Uh, you, if you're not, uh, the typical conservative in my reading of events is someone who looks around himself and he finds things that he loves, you know, and he thinks, well, those things are threatened, they're vulnerable, right. I've got to protect right. them. Um, and it's not often that you find on the left somebody who looks around and finds things that he loves. It's, um, it's always something that's gone wrong, something that is even hateful, uh, and you've got to mobilize against it. If you've lost any sense that actually the world is lovable and that there are things therefore to be rescued in it, you have actually lost the, the sense of why there is such a thing as a community in the first place. Mm. And that, I think, is one of the things that I felt very strongly throughout my life, that, that, that there really are wonderful things that we've inherited. All Americans, however, whatever position in society they are, are still heirs to something rather remarkable, you know, a rule of law which is, goes on perpetuating itself from generation to generation. If, they, if only people knew how rare that was, they would see that they've got to fight to preserve it. You know, uh, uh, and the same with so many other institutions that we've Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you. Okay, let's uh, get back to commenting on how Vice News thought it was going to revolutionize news. And repaid that trust with a fervid dedication to their craft. I was a green 31-year-old reporter when I started with only the Libyan War, Tunisian Revolution and a strange months-long sojourn with tribal rebels in Sudan under my belt. Vice gave me the freedom to follow the Malian army into bloody battle against jihadist rebels, experience the Egyptian coup from the Islamist side, return to Syria over and over again during the course of the war and follow the ISIS story from their initially underplayed rise to their final desert Gotterdammerung. And, like ISIS, Vice was a 2010s phenomenon that wrongly thought it could take on the giants and win. Perhaps that strange kinship between the decade's two great disruptors is why Vice News was the only Western network ISIS let embed with them in Syria and Iraq. This isn't as wild as it sounds. ISIS watched us and we watched them. As the Syria reporter for years, focusing on ISIS, I watched the terrorist group copy Vice's style in their videos as very online Western millennials took over their output, syncing cinematic DSLR footage with hypnotic music and thrilling action sequences. Yeah, so a lot of people think uh, they are the future. Turns out they have a 
vastly vastly exaggerated sense of their own perspicacity, their own wisdom, their own talent, their own abilities. So I thought when I started blogging in 1997, 1998, that I was the uh, future of uh, of news. So this this New York Times article, uh, Carlson's text that alarmed Fox leaders, right? Uh, they just take it for granted that this is offensive. But, uh, you know, whether or not his texts are offensive is just entirely subjective. And there's just no no humility here on the part of the, the New York Times. They just think it's just, you know, out and out obvious that Tucker was texting things that were offensive. Well, I think uh, there was a lot that was morally elevating and what he was texting. Young Western ISIS fighters and social media influencers were constantly messaging me on Twitter, critiquing my films, and either asking me to join them or threatening to kidnap and behead me next time I deployed. I have... Okay, so instead of playing total football, right, you're watching Ted Lasso, you learn about uh, total football where there's no fixed position in soccer, like everyone is constantly watching other members of the team and filling the gaps. So maybe we should play total social capital by rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. And, oh yeah, about the the writer's strike, which is shutting down show business. So I used to just be knee-jerk anti-union because it was a restriction on human freedom. And uh, it, uh, you know, distorted the economy. But I've kind of come around. So even if, let's say, the writers are wrong for going on strike, if you participate in the strike as a writer, you will deepen your bonds with other people, with your in-group, with your society, with your community, right? So right and wrong is important. But if no matter what you do, all right, it's not going to make any difference, then perhaps there are more important things than right and wrong in certain instances. Maybe what, what what's most right for you is to connect with your in-group, your, your fellow writers, and you know, go, go protest, go gather here, go gather there, support each other. So I, I didn't think in my younger days about the communal aspect of belonging to a union, the social capital in belonging to a union, the reduction in loneliness from belonging to a union, the shared sense of excitement when you embark on a common project together. So in my old age, I'm starting to think maybe maybe unions aren't so bad. Sometimes. That's it. Bye-bye.